Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, it's not even fall yet, but we're going to take a sneak peek behind the weather curtain to see what the upcoming winter may have in store for us Canadians. And we'll open up the pages of the Old Farmer's Almanac to find out. They're calling it a winter whiteout. Find out what that means for your neck of the woods. With major wildfires still burning in several parts of Canada tonight, the country will mark Firefighters National Memorial Day on Sunday. It's a day to remember firefighters who have fallen in the line of duty, including four this July alone fighting those wildfires. The president of the Canadian Fallen Firefighters Foundation joins me to talk about a very tough year and the significance of the day. New York City is cracking down on short-term rentals such as Airbnb, enacting probably the toughest municipal law out there. So how does it work? And should Canadian cities be looking to take a bite out of the Big Apple's playbook here? But first, the Bank of Canada held interest rates at 5% this week, a tiny bit of relief uh, for some who've been for some who've seen their mortgage payments spike since rates started to climb in early 2022. Stats released a few months ago show only one in three Canadian mortgage holders now say they can meet their financial commitments without difficulty. We meet one of them whose monthly payments for their home have nearly doubled. Let's start, though, with an issue that is top of mind for many, many people. There were a lot of people watching Tiff Macklem this week, the Bank of Canada governor, to see what would the bank would be doing with interest rates. Of course, they held at 5%. Signs, of course, that the slowing economy, that there's a slowing in the economy. Some relief for those already struggling with rising mortgage costs. Uh, but uh, Macklem also left the door open to future rate hikes as the central bank continues to try to ease inflation. He says he's aware that the hikes are making life difficult or more difficult for some Canadians. We're hearing directly from Canadians uh, that high inflation is hurting them. The destination is worth it. We don't want to make it any more difficult uh, than it has to be. But we do require higher interest rates. And indeed, we have them, right? Uh, One of the cruel ironies, point out some economists of these rising rates, is that higher mortgage costs for some Canadians with variable rate mortgages, specifically a certain kind, uh, or ones that are up for renewal, is actually adding to inflation. Here's what CIBC Deputy Chief Economist Benjamin Tao told me on Monday. The Bank of Canada is raising interest rates to fight inflation. Higher interest rates are adding to interest payments on mortgages that are adding to inflation. You see? It's yes. like putting a humidifier and dehumidifier in the same room, let them go at each other. A humidifier and a dehumidifier in the same room and letting them go at each other. There was a great interview, by the way. You can hear it on Monday's podcast at a littlemoreconversation.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. But let's put this problem into perspective now. Stats released a few months ago show that about 35% of Canadians hold a mortgage. The other third rent, another third own their homes outright. So 35% of Canadians have a mortgage, including myself. Uh, only one in three of them, of us, can now meet their financial commitments without difficulty. Someone who knows that situation all too well is Sarah Dweck. She's She and her husband bought a home in Langley two years ago and with a variable rate mortgage, and that has been an issue for the couple at this point. Sarah, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Tell me a bit about your house and why you, I mean, I remember back to two years ago, I live in BC, so I remember what was happening to property values. Everything was kind of shooting up. What made you decide to uh, to take the plunge and buy that house in Langley? Uh, so we were living in a little townhouse, my husband and I, um, and we were really, uh, we wanted to do something about 
the affordable housing crisis. I mean, we saw just how difficult it is for so many people to um, to find a rental that actually meets their budget. And we thought, you know what, we have we have some extra in our budget right now. We could potentially sell our townhouse, buy a larger house with a rental unit, um, and we could rent to somebody at an affordable rate who who really needs something like who really needs um, a little help. And we right. thought we can't solve the whole affordable housing crisis, but we can help one person at least. So let's do it. We thought we'll buy a house and we started looking. Right. And then you landed on this one, which I gather was within your range, right? It was within the range that, that the bank said you qualified for stress test wise, right? Yeah, easily within our range. We didn't even max out what we qualified for. And, you know, we passed the stress test, no problem. So at the time, we had no concerns. This wasn't even on our radar. We thought, you know, if we pass the stress test, we're good for the, at least for the term of our mortgage for the next five years. Right. Still always scary, right? I mean, I gather it was about $900,000, the mortgage, which is a big chunk of change. But if you think that interest rates are going to stay somewhat normal or somewhat worth they've been for the past while, then you kind of budget and figure out that it's affordable. Yeah. And we'd considered all of that in our budget and we had it planned out and we had a plan for if the interest rates went up, you know, within the range of what the stress test said, they could go up and what the bank was indicating could be that, that rise in rates. And, you know, we did take a gamble on a variable rate, but at the time the bank was saying, Interest rates are going to be low for a while, and it'll be a slow, gradual increase when it does go up. So we felt really confident taking this variable rate mortgage. So tell me about March of 2022. I remember it because that's when the rate rates started to climb. We didn't know how fast they were going to climb and how far, but here we are at 5%. They were, I think, at 025 when this all began. Uh, what was that like for you and your husband as these rates started to grow and grow and grow? Uh, so at the beginning... When the rates started going up, you know, that was still kind of within our budget, within our expectation. And we thought, okay, this is fine. We'll go up a bit and then inflation will stabilize and then it'll come back down and we'll we'll weather the storm. But um, every new rate, was they just happened in such a rapid succession. And by the time we started realizing oh, we actually, we're having to struggle to really afford this and we have to really change our spending. Um, it, was, it was too late for us to lock into a fixed rate. You know, every time they raised, we thought maybe this is the end, but it just kept going up and up. So what are we talking here? What, what did you start off with as your monthly payments and where have you landed now? Uh, so our monthly payments started um, about $3,600 a month. And... Now we're paying about um, $6,400 a month. So it's wow. a significant increase for us. $2,800. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. been quite a bit. How do you, I mean, you have a good job, right? I understand you're an engineer, your husband's a teacher, so you're, you're in pretty good shape. And, and yet here you are feeling the squeeze of this. How, how, do, you, how do you make ends meet? Uh, so we're not saving for retirement at all. We stopped all of our investments. Um, we've been cutting back where we can. Um, so, you know, we, we started cutting back on, you know, things like groceries, but, you know, in a grocery budget, you're not, you can't make thousands of dollars a month back in, in savings there. 
Um, we were cutting back on travel as well, so I haven't been able to see my family as much. They live in Ontario. I live in B.C. Um, and we've also been renting rooms in our house to university students just to basically help with our budget, help uh, things balance every month. Right. So, so listeners understand, I mean, there are not, uh, I think a lot of people have variable rate mortgages. There's about three quarters of them have fixed variable rate mortgages. And in your case, yours fluctuates, right? Depending on what the interest rates mm-hmm. are. Yes. Yeah. What, what, what now? I mean, I mean, if you look at, clearly, we think they're probably going to stay, but it looks like they might, but we've heard word that they might go up again. Um, have you, are, what, what will that mean for you? Well, if they go up too much more, um, we yeah we don't have a lot more wiggle room to try and generate more income here. Uh, we might have to start looking at selling the house. We've talked about it a little bit. Um, we really don't want to. Um, I mean, it would negate the whole purpose of why we did this in the first place, you know. And I think our house is really the only thing that's standing between our tenant who's a, an at-risk youth who's aged out of the foster care system and, and being mm-hmm. on the street, we're offering an affordable rental. Um, so we, we don't want to compromise that. We want to do everything we can to hold on to the house and make things work. Sarah, I mean, it must be in a situation that you're in. Um, I mean, there's only so much you can do. How do you explain it to others when people ask about it? Because you can't be the only person in this situation. You must know of other people who are facing similar struggles as well. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people don't really talk about it. You know, like no. finances are, it's a little bit of a cultural taboo. Like it seems like it's this very personal matter. Um, and, you know, I find as we've started talking about it recently, we've had a lot of people opening up to us and saying, oh, yeah, like we're really struggling too. Or, oh, we've had to, you know, take on a second job. And so, you know, it's been good to kind of break that taboo and start talking because um, it seems like there's a lot of other people who are in kind of in the same boat and really struggling with it. I mean, you have five years, I gather you have about three years left, right, on this Mm -hmm. this variable, right? I mean, the banks, I gather, have been relatively accommodating because they would rather see you pay off that loan than, than take your home. So in this case, have you been able to sit down with them at all to sort of discuss or is it pretty much a done deal? Um, we did, we talked with our bank a little bit. We found it pretty difficult, actually. Like right. we went to the, the local branch and they didn't have any mortgage specialists there to talk to us. We had to, it was very, um, actually it was our, our mortgage broker who initially reached out to us and said, you should talk to your bank and see if they can do anything for you. Like they might be able to help you out. Um, but we, we actually haven't found the bank to be super accommodating. It was hard to find even like the phone number to call and, wow. you know, when we talked about switching to, to a fixed rate, um, you know, like they don't make you any guarantees and, oh, you know, we can hold this rate for you for like the next week if you want to lock into this fixed rate. But, you know, there's, I don't know, it didn't seem like there was a lot of support there on the bank side for us. Right. I, I, and I guess you're just sort of trying to figure out where interest rates are going to go from here to see how to make that decision, right? So you don't lock into something that's unaffordable and then everything comes down in, in a year and a half, which we don't know how fast they're going to come down, but that's the, the, the guessing game that a lot of people are playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but we're, we haven't locked into a fixed rate and we're, making that bet that, you know, we're really hoping that they are going to start coming down and that we'll start to see some relief if we can just hang on for the foreseeable future.
Well, do you have a do you have not to use the term red line, but do you have sort of a red line that you've decided on? Uh not quite. <laughs> not quite. Not quite yet. We have yeah, we have, you know, uh a couple more options. We've recently started taking on homestay students, which gives us a little bit more income than just renting out the room. So that's kind of been our, our latest experiment in how we can generate a little more income and and keep things going here. Just keep afloat, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, it's hard in this situation because I think as Canadians, and I think this is, a, and you mentioned it already, when we, we don't often talk about money, right? We often blame ourselves, right? We say we should have known. We should have, you know, we should have taken a fixed rate when we when it was there. And uh, But do you have any other, like when you look out at this grand scheme of things, without, without do, you, do you have anyone else that you're not happy with in all this? <laughs> well, I don't know. We, we feel like, the Bank of Canada really lied to us, right? Like they, they gave us all these messages about, oh, things are, you know, things are going to be low for a while. And um, we just took their word for it. And so we've been kind of disappointed with the Bank of Canada for changing directions so quickly and then hiking things so quickly that, you know, we didn't really have time to respond. And, um, you know, before we knew it, we were already at a very high rate. Yeah. And I guess it's one of those things, like so many of us, I don't think a lot of us paid much attention to the Bank of Canada for many, many years, right? With this, you know, interest rate announcements were a non-issue for, for, for ages. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I never started paying attention to the Bank of Canada announcements until, really, until, until we had that one, that really high, I think it went up by, by a percent a or point. something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was when we thought, oh, gosh, this is, you know, this isn't just a, a quarter percent, a small hike, like this is significantly going to impact our payments. Yeah. Has it changed your politics at all? I, I'm, I know that we're talking about money and politics as strangers, which is something very un-Canadian, but uh, has it changed your politics <laughs> at all? Um, I don't know that it's changed our politics. Yeah. I think it, it's definitely made us more, I'd say more focused on housing I mean, we were we were concerned about housing before. Obviously, that's that's why we got our house. But mm-hmm. just thinking about you know housing as a human right, like everybody should have a house. And you know we live well, we live in a very expensive part of the country where you know there's a lot of people who just can't afford a house, and a lot of people even with jobs who are looking at you know homelessness because the rental rates are going up proportionally to the way the the way that mortgages are going up. So I think. For us, we've definitely, um, I think our politics have become more focused on, you know, government policies that can help address housing and help provide affordable housing for everybody who needs a place to live. Right. Well, Sarah, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I think a lot of us are watching the interest rate announcements these days. Thank you so much for sharing, for being so candid. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's head to New York City now, because this is a contentious issue in a lot of places. Um, So as of Tuesday, thousands of Airbnbs and short-term rentals uh, were just about wiped off the map in New York City. It's called Local Law 18. It is so strict. It doesn't just limit how Airbnb operates in the city. Again, it almost bans them entirely for many guests and hosts. From now on, here are the rules. All short-term rental hosts in New York City must register. A, only those who and only those who live in the place they are renting and are present when someone is staying can qualify. And people can only have two guests. 
and and that's not all of them. There are more rules, but those are the that's the basics of it. Uh, you have to live there. Basically, you have to rent out a room. You have to be present when someone else is staying, uh, and you can only have two guests. So, I mean, pretty much you're going to be sharing the couch watching Netflix with your Airbnb guests, right? So this essentially is to crack down on a large uh, issue in New York City, which is a lot of sort of Airbnb hotels or sort of ghost hotels, as they call them. Uh, now, part of the issue here is that this has been a bit of a dance between New York City and Airbnb for quite a while right? Uh, Airbnb specifically, but short-term rentals broadly. And they've been sort of escalating the amount of rules that are in place, and it hasn't seemed to work. And Airbnb has been quite contentious. They've kind of fought with New York City over this. And so here we are, New York City, obviously the logical place to put in these kinds of rules, A, because it's not going to really impact their tourism industry. They get tons of tourists no matter what. And they have a huge hospitality industry in New York City. I mean, there's never any trouble finding a hotel. It's just more expensive, right? And that's probably part of the issue here is the unintended consequences of who's being targeted. But first, have a listen to New York City Mayor, Mayor Eric Adams, who talked about this last year. He was previewing the 2023 law that just came into effect. We're not going to let bad actors, uh, despite their attitudes, they are not going to deplete our housing stock and our hospitality sector. Uh, we want to keep our visitors and communities safe and make sure that New Yorkers are not deprived of their much-needed living space. Right. So, I mean, this is going to be a big change if you've ever – I mean, I've stayed at an Airbnb in New York, to believe it or not, just because it was significantly less expensive and it was more convenient and so on. So I guess a lot of that's just going to go away. The big question is, and I imagine a lot of other municipalities will be watching to see how this works, should Canadian cities be taking a bite out of the Big Apple's playbook here? Joining me now with more on that is David Walksmith. He's an associate professor at McGill in the School of Urban Planning, the Canada Research Chair in Urban Governance. He's also one of the world's leading experts on the impact of short-term rental platforms such as Airbnb on cities right across the country and right around the world. David, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. This has been an interesting one because, you know, clearly I'm, you know, I travel a bit and I pay attention to what Airbnb is up to. And what I've seen in the last year or a bit since sort of travel resumed, you know, en masse is a big jump in availability and a big jump in prices. So clearly uh, things are going pretty swimmingly on these short-term rental platforms. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If you leave aside the fact that uh, you know cities are, are are kind of looking to crack down again, but um, for sure there has been um, a major resurgence in demand for short-term rentals um, following the kind of return to normalcy and travel after the pandemic, and that, as you said, has manifested in really higher prices, but also just a lot more activity. Yeah. What kind of impact? I mean, you've looked into this uh, both pre-pandemic, and I, I assume you're still looking into it now. What kind of impact is that having? On the rental market, because we're also talking a lot about the fact that rental prices have skyrocketed over the past 36 months or so. Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, the way I would describe this is that um, prior to the pandemic in um, you know, pretty much every big city across Canada and in many of the small communities as well, um, short-term rentals were one of a number of factors that were kind of conspiring together to push up rental prices. Um, and, you know, there you know, kind of fundamentally, the big question is, is there enough available rental housing to meet demand? And so on the one hand, you know, maybe we're not building enough of it. But on the other hand, some of the supply that we do have is exiting the market because it's turning into short-term rentals. Um, and in some of my research, I found, you know, a pretty consistent impact of, of short-term rentals on, on rents. And um, during the pandemic, of course, that whole situation gets flipped upside down. You see a, a lot of 
former short-term rentals returning to the long-term market. Um, and we kind of got a, a couple of years of a breather. Um, but what's happened specifically in 2023 is that, um, you know, we're really just seeing a return to the status quo in 2019, where a lot of people realize they make a lot more money if they offer their units to tourists as opposed to long-term renters. And the result is that rents go up for residents. One of the things I've noticed, too, where I am uh, in Victoria, is that for a period there, and I'm wondering if it's still happening, a lot of what was coming on the market felt like it was built for Airbnb. So you sort of talked about housing starts and condo starts and all these things that were being put up in your communities. And often if you went to see them, you'd think, wait a second, this isn't built for a family of two or three. This is built for a short-term rental. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely um, it's definitely been a trend. And, you know, the way I would contextualize this is that if you go back, you know, several decades um, when the condo boom gets going in Canada, it was always the case that a certain chunk of the condos that were being built weren't going to be occupied by owners. Um, you know, the precise numbers vary, but, you know, roughly about a third of condos that were getting built were bought as investment properties. Um, but the fact is that the only thing you can you used to be able to do with a condo you bought as an investment property was find a tenant. Um, Airbnb really uh, upended that market because it meant that for investors who are, you know, we're not necessarily talking about big companies. We're talking about individuals who purchase one or two units. Um, they now had a, a second, often more profitable thing they could do with their investment condos, which is put them directly onto the short-term rental market. And so, as you say, the result is that a, a whole number of units that would have otherwise gone onto the long-term rental market just never arrived there in the first place because they, as soon as the, you know, the, they cut the ribbon, these were being offered on Airbnb. Yeah, and, and I suppose that has a different impact of, in of itself. We, we've seen some really high-profile incidents this year, including where you are in Montreal and old Montreal with that horrific fire. It feels yeah. like, once again, authorities are waking up to some of, the, some of the issues. I mean, I don't want to lump every Airbnb into the same basket because there are clearly many different kinds of people who list things on Airbnb. Uh, but it did certainly highlight some gaps in the system, even in a jurisdiction that had already started to sort of regulate more, more tightly than many others. Yeah, I mean, I think that there have been several waves of, let's say, kind of, you know, government attention. Um, if you, you know, you dial back the clock to the early days of Airbnb, this is people sharing their own homes, um, you know, usually in a kind of casual part-time basis. And I think it was kind of understandable that it wouldn't be a huge priority to regulate. Um, but, you know, over the course of the 2010s, this really transformed into a commercial market uh, where, you know, basically people are operating hotels out of uh, apartment buildings. And, you know, I think there was an initial round of cities passing laws and then kind of hoping that those people would follow those laws. And what happened instead is that Airbnb, the company, but also, you know, individual hosts realized there's not really any enforcement happening here. So we can probably just ignore these laws and go about our business. And that's unfortunately what has been happening in Montreal. Um, including through the you know the, the the tragic fire last March. Yeah, I actually stayed, I think, in one of the first ever Airbnbs in San Francisco. I remember the owner telling me they were in the first hundred or thousand people that had ever signed up for the platform many, many, many years ago. Uh, when you look at the impact that that's having, you sort of break down the Airbnb market then, I get the impression that it's not every listing that it becomes a problem. It's certain kinds of listings that become more, call it predatory than others. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think, you know, if you just think about it from a kind of, basic math perspective, um, you look at the number of hosts that are active on, on Airbnb in you know any given city, most of them are people who are just casual home sharers. 
But because they're casual home shares, they don't do a lot of business, right? So it's somebody who, you know, I've got, a, you know, I'm out of town this weekend. I'll find someone to stay in my place and make a couple bucks. Um, so that's kind of most of who's active on the platform when you're just kind of counting up human beings. But most of the activity is happening with a, a much smaller number of listings that are active year round uh, where people are running them like a business. And, um, you know, the research is pretty clear on this, that these are the listings that are, that have the, the most contribution to driving up housing prices, but also where you're most likely to have other, um, you know, kind of negative side effects for neighborhoods. Um, you know, crime is one of them that's been um, looked at quite a bit. Um, also issues around noise, garbage, these kinds of things. So, you know, I think I would really want to make the distinction between the kind of full-time commercial operations where I think, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that the costs to cities outweigh the benefits. And on the other hand, people doing home sharing where I think we should let that, uh, we should encourage that. And I think it's a, you know, it's a win-win for cities. It strikes me that, that the the person most capable of, or the, the organization most capable of, of making that happen is the platform itself, because they know, they know who's on there, right? They know if someone has 50 or 60 listings or someone has two or three, I'm sure they can tell the difference between sort of what you, what we, t- we talked about as being the, the, the hotels, the illegal hotels versus those people just sort of casually sharing uh, a unit that they own or something they're not using or, or, or a room in their house. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, you really put your finger on what a lot of the frustration has been here in Quebec following the fire in March, because, you know, Quebec as a province, it passed rules required that every Airbnb get registered with the province. And it passed those rules in 2020. So they had been in effect for just about three years at the time the fire had happened. In all that time, Airbnb at any moment could have just flipped a switch and removed all the listings that had not even the ones that necessarily were running, you know, fake permit numbers where, you know, you just type one, two, three, four, five, six. But the fact is that most Airbnbs in the province three years after these rules came into into effect didn't even have anything written at all as a registration number. And Airbnb, you know, they they had to be dragged kicking and screaming into doing their part, which the, the bare minimum in Quebec was kick out all the listings that are just flagrantly breaking the law because they're not getting a permit in the first place. And including, of course, the listing where um, seven people died. Um, so, you know, this is a hundred percent Airbnb has, you know, kind of been very happy to ignore rules that they haven't actually been coerced into complying with. And that's a real shame. David Walksmith is with us this half hour. He is an associate professor at McGill in the School of Urban Planning. He's also one of the world's leading experts on the impacts of short-term rental platforms such as Airbnb on cities. Uh, The one in the spotlight this week, David, is New York City. Uh, Local Law 18, they call it, came into force on Tuesday. It's it's a strict one. And, and, you know, I'm always interested in seeing how different jurisdictions handle this because where I am, they sort of pass some laws about Airbnbs, but grandfathered in many, 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 many units. This New York law looks pretty tough. And I'm wondering if you think it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I think basically the toughest law we've seen, um, you know, passed it by a municipality. And um, basically, um, you know, when you, when you kind of cut through all the different, you know, little bits and pieces, what it boils down to is that New York is only going to allow short-term rentals um, in, you know, being operated of a host's principal residence, which is pretty common. You know, if you don't live there, you can't offer the rental. But on top of that, the host actually has to be physically present, um, which means that you won't even be able to do the kind of thing which is reasonably common where you, you, you go on vacation for a week in the summer and you let someone stay in your place while you're gone. Um, so the, you know, I think, it you know, there's a big F around if these rules would be enforced or how well they'll be enforced. But if they are enforced, at a pretty high level, you know, this is basically going to mean the end of Airbnb as a kind of commercial 
you know, concern in New York. In other words, um, you won't, there, there won't be any chance of people kind of operating Airbnbs as businesses in ways that will make money. It really will be a very, very small scale home sharing um, kind of activity, which is very different from what it's looked like over the last decade. Yeah, kind of like stuffing it back into back into the bottle that it was in when it first started out, right? Which was sort of a casual place to offer a room that you may have in a converted garage. That's where we stayed in San Francisco was a converted garage that had become a room so they could make some money. It, it strikes me as being, I mean, you know, if you look at what, at what we were talking about, it strikes me as being even a little too far, the New York one. I can see what the frustrations are in New York City. Um, but this one feels like it's really, really pushing the envelope on this. And I'm wondering if it's if it doesn't go a little too far and therefore kind of defeats the purpose hard to enforce right yeah well it, it's definitely possible i mean I, the way i would put this is that um you know there are kind of two things which are pretty distinctive about new york one is that this is a city that has you know a vast number of tourist accommodation options already right i mean you know new york gets tons of tourists and there are a, a tons of great hotels at lots of different price points so on some level i think if given that the city has decided to you know more or less declare war on Airbnb here, you know, I think that they are on, on some of them, they can probably just get away with that because it's not like a situation which where say, you know, like some of our smaller towns in Canada, you know, think of a place like Tofino in British Columbia, say, right. where, you know, where there are tons of visitors coming in, but you don't necessarily have a, a lot of 12 month, um, you know, kind of accommodation options like hotels. So the vacation rentals are a big part of the, of the landscape. In New York, they can get away with not having any Airbnbs and they're going to still going to be a lot of places for people to stay. But the other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, when I said New York's kind of gone to war with Airbnb, in a certain sense, that war has been ongoing for a, a decade now. I mean, in, in 2014, I believe, Airbnb sued the Attorney General of New York State to try to prevent um, regulations from, um, uh, you know, being enforced against it. Um, and I do think that this kind of latest, you know, very, very strict crackdown is in some sense Airbnb kind of reaping what they sowed in the sense of they have refused to be a cooperative partner in enforcing previous rounds of rules in New York, which were uh, which were quite a bit more modest. Um, and I guess that at a certain point, the city decided, well, if they're not going to, if we're going to have to drag them, you know, really kind of, you know, crack down hard in order to get our rules followed, then maybe we should put really strict rules in place while we're doing it. And I think that's kind of what's happened here. Right. And New York, as you point out, is one of the few cities that actually has the the heft to be able to do that, right? Because you're right. They, they, it's not like the tourism industry is going to fall apart if all of a sudden there are fewer short-term rentals. And there are a lot of accommodations people can turn to. Uh, can other cities, and when I think of the, the Vancouver's and the Toronto's and the Montreal's, can other cities follow in New York's footsteps? I suppose every municipality is going to be watching to see what happens. I think that's right. I mean, I, I would be very surprised to see um, Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver um, kind of come down as harshly as New York has. Um, what I will say is that all three of those cities have pretty strict rules in place already. And Vancouver's definitely had the best luck with enforcing the rules. Um, but I think that everybody's going to be looking at New York um, to, you know, I, I think in, in, in part just to kind of see what happens with a city that goes farther than, you know, most others are kind of willing to, right? Like, is this going to be, um, you know, are there any going to be any, any unintended consequences that come out um, or, you know, are they going to kind of, you know, manage to successfully put these new rules in place and have, um, you know, hosts mostly follow the rules. Um, so I do think everybody's going to be watching, but I'd be really, really surprised to see Canadian cities, um, you know, follow New York's lead in terms of the severity of their restrictions. David, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. This is a very, uh, very sad day for our province. 
and for all British Columbians. And I want to say thank you to her for her work, uh, for her sacrifice, and to her family and friends uh, for supporting her and doing this dangerous work. Um, our thoughts are with all of you. That was BC's Premier David Eby back in mid-July. Speaking about the death of 19-year-old Devin Gale, uh, she was a wildland firefighter who was struck and killed by a tree in a remote area outside of her home community of Revelstoke, BC. Gale was one of four people uh, fighting the record wildfires that have burned across this country that have been killed in the line of duty in July alone. There was 25-year-old Adam Yeadon, who died on July 15th uh, in Fort Laird, Northwest Territories. Ryan Gould uh, near Hague Lake, uh, northeast of Peace River, Alberta, on July 19th. Um, and, you know, and, and others as well. So it's been a really difficult, difficult year uh, for firefighters right across the country. As we well know, they've been on the front lines of some incredibly dangerous wildfire situations. And, uh, you know, that includes within communities, residential communities. We obviously heard from uh, the fire chief from West Kelowna many times on the show talking about that community. Uh, We've had fires in Halifax earlier in the year, in Nova Scotia earlier in the year, then it was Quebec, uh, then Alberta, Northwest Territories, BC. It's been just a really dangerous and difficult year for firefighters right across the country. Uh, and the sacrifice that they make, uh, as well as that has been made, the one that has been made by so many others over the decades, will be on the mind minds of many as Canada marks Firefighters National Memorial Day on Sunday, the second Sunday in September. Now, each year since 2017 is designated in memory of firefighters who have fallen in the line of duty, including the four this year. On that day, of course, Canadian flags will be at half-mast. You may notice that uh, in your community. It'll happen in federal buildings right across the country, city halls, and so forth. But I wanted to find out a bit more about the year that's been for the firefighting community, given all that's happened, and also just the significance of the day this year for firefighters. So joining me now is David Sheen. He's the former fire chief in Ajax, Ontario. He served with the Toronto Fire Department as well. He's now president of the Canadian Fallen Firefighters Foundation. David, thank you. Oh, thank you, Ben. Thanks for having us. This is, I mean, every year, I, I, you know, I notice where I am here in Victoria, the flags, of course, uh, come down and uh, there's a memorial here on the grounds of the legislature. It, it's, it's, a, it's an emotional day. And this year feels like, like it's going to be particularly emotional because it's been such a challenging year for firefighters right across the country. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, um, the federal government has made the second Sunday in September uh, National Firefighters Memorial Day. So the flags uh, on all the the federal buildings will be at half mast. Um, but to the point of of the, what has been an unprecedented year for for wildfires in particular um, and, you know, Interestingly enough, and purely coincidental, uh, the honorary hosts, we always have an honorary host and arranged well in advance, like years ahead. And this year, our honorary hosts are the wildland firefighters. So not only, you know, have they faced an unprecedented season of wildfires and are still, in fact, facing them, but uh, they're also stepping up to the bat and uh, up to the plate, rather, and and helping us make this weekend a reality for, for the families. So. Uh, uh, I'm just in awe of them. Yeah, I mean, we've we've interviewed firefighters, of course, both. I mean, when you look at the at the scope of those who've been fighting these wildfires this summer, along with all the other work that firefighters do each and every day right across the country, it's amazing because you have volunteer services, you have obviously the professional services in bigger places, you have the wildland fire crews, you have the military out there as well. Uh, how have you seen this summer through the eyes of someone who's had to um, who's you know been on the front lines of this stuff, uh, fires and pers- specifically? 
Well, you know, certainly I have watched with interest, um, you know, because now I'm retired, but, you know, I see what they're going through. And of course, because of us dealing with fallen firefighters, uh, as you may be aware, we've had four wildland firefighters who lost their lives uh, in the line of duty. Um, and in fact, I was uh, able to represent the foundation at the celebration of life for, for Zach Muse, who was uh, uh, killed out in BC, but his family lives in Simcoe, Ontario. And uh, um, so I went to support the family. And, uh, you know, so so from my perspective, you know, I I, I just watch with interest and and you know there's so many challenges that as you've said really all aspects of firefighting whether it's aboriginal or military or professional or volunteer um it's just amazing how these people uh step up and uh and, and put uh, you know potentially put their lives in danger um it, you know i always think though that the the most heroic thing that they do is signing up in the first place and, and knowing that that's a, a risk they may take every day. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned their names already. I, I think it's important to point out that in July alone, we lost Devin Gale, just 19, um, Adam Eden, 25, Ryan Gould, 41, and Zach Muse, as you mentioned, uh, the 25 year old. I, I mean, I, I don't remember a month like that. Uh, and I've, you know, I've been covering these things for a long time. I don't remember a month with that much tragedy. It must've been, must've been tough for, for your organization. And you mentioned you were, you were, uh, counseling the families as well, or one of the families. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, kind of a neat story. I, I went, uh, I was introduced to Zach's family. Um, I said, look, you know, you're you're going to, this is going to be a blur to you, um, but just know, so you know that the foundation is here to help you in the future. And, you know, here's my card. Uh, please, we'll, we'll help you uh, through this process. And next year, uh, those four individuals and their families will join us here in Ottawa to honour those four individuals, along with all the other names that we, uh, we put on the wall. And interestingly enough, at the, uh, uh, I had a follow-up conversation with, uh, with Zach's father, and at the end of it, he said to me, you know what, we are really looking forward to being a part of the CFFF family. So, yeah, yeah, uh, an emotional time, right? I mean, yeah. it's hard to put into words how those losses are absorbed by the families. And and also, you know, we also have to point out the good work they've done this year. I mean, how many communities have been saved because they were out there? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the efforts that uh, that all firefighters put in but in this particular case the wildland firefighters has just been uh unbelievable we have a, a wildland firefighter on our board and one of our ambassadors uh, a former board member is is a wildland firefighter and i was talking to them and they you know they've just come off of rotation and are just absolutely exhausted um but uh god love them the, the work that they've done it's it's just been incredible Tell me a bit about what happens this weekend. I know I think a lot of us are familiar with what happens on Sunday, but this is uh, this is bigger than that. Uh, and it was the culmination of years and years of work on the part of your organization and others. Yeah. So our the the foundation. This is our twentieth ceremony that we've had. Um, our foundation really started about between 22, 21 years ago, um, getting off the ground. Um, but it, it's not just the ceremony on Saturday. This is about the families. This is about bringing them here to Ottawa um, and about 
you know, letting them know that they are a part of our family and offering them our, our continued support and them seeing their loved one honored. Um, so we, we kind of kick off today uh, where we, you know, we meet with the families and kind of brief them on what's going on. We have a wonderful hospitality room to, to enjoy each other's company in a very informal atmosphere. Uh, you know, tomorrow is a whole bunch of things going on during the day, like practicing for Sunday and the ceremony. Mm-hmm. But then we we bring the families down to the monument uh, for a time of reflection where they can have some quiet time and see their loved one's name and maybe do an etching of their, their name. And uh, then we have a, a beautiful dinner with the families and share some time with them. And, you know, in the meantime, we've got some other social things going on. The p- pipes and drums play in downtown Ottawa and and bring a lot of attention. And then, of course, Sunday is our uh, our, our ceremony, which is kind of the culmination of the, the weekend before the, we see the families off. So um, but yeah. knowing that they're always going to be a part of our family after this. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what suffering that kind of loss is like, but but I can also I also imagine that that having that kind of support and knowing that you're part of a community is uh, must bring some solace. You know, and and that's another thing. For instance, that Zach's family said to me, you know, they they to know that they're going to get a chance to meet others who are going through exactly what they've been through. I mean. I've never been through it. I've dealt with families for for 20 years now, um, and I, I know what it's like, but I've never personally experienced that loss like they have. And, and so I, I can't really relate other than I see the impact that this weekend has on them and uh, i've i've watched it uh for for 20 years and it's uh it's it's wonderful to see you know um it really um it, it re-energizes us in the foundation with regards to the work that we do when we see the impact that we have on the families david sheen is a the president of the canadian fallen firefighters foundation uh sunday marks Firefighters National Memorial Day flags will be at half staff right across the country in many places to remember the firefighters who've been killed in the line of duty. Of course, we've been talking about what a dangerous year it's been for firefighters this year. Wildland firefighters, specifically four, uh, if you'll remember, were killed in July alone. And that has made this a very tragic year. And we know what kind of sacrifices are made uh, when those people are sent out to fight these fires. Um, uh, it always leads, David, to the to the idea of what can we do to better protect firefighters in the future. I know your foundation's about supporting those who have lost, but we also should, I guess, look at what we can do uh, to better protect them because these will always be dangerous jobs. Um, what, what, do, what do you think about that? Well, you know, the the biggest challenge that really the fire service, all aspects of the fire service are, is facing now is occupational illnesses, really. Right. Um, you, you know, and so right now there's, you know, developments in technology to to create better protective gear for firefighters. And uh, but perhaps more to the point uh, from where we're involved, uh, MP Sherry Romanato, who is, who is actually our, our keynote speaker at our ceremony on on Sunday, um, she um, has brought forward a private members bill that actually, if anybody knows anything about private members bills, uh, they're, they're very hard to get through. Indeed. But Sherry was so wonderful and guided it through the process and got unanimous support uh, in both the House and the Senate to make it real 
reality. And and what this bill is aimed at is uh, standardizing uh, cancer recognition for firefighters across the country um, and also providing some uh, some valuable needed resources uh, to do research into firefighter cancers. And, you know, we that's that's part of our the big issue with firefighters is not just like those invisible uh, threats to to life um, that don't manifest themselves right away, but manifest themselves long term. And, and you know, we're also uh, part of that is also mental health and, and PTSD. And, you know, this year we have a family, uh, the Bracken family from Markham, who uh, unfortunately Xavier, you know, lost his life to, to PTSD. And um, they're, th- that family is joining us. And they're they're so thrilled that, that his story is being being told um because that's that's very important for us that that you know we realize that that that's a toll that it takes on all of these first responders is 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 the mental toll and this weekend we're we're incredibly proud to be announcing a new partnership with wounded warriors canada they're going to help the foundation uh we're going to go forward as partners to to address mental health issues in first responders and also to provide support services for the families uh, after the fact I suppose when one thinks about this weekend, I mean, Monday is the anniversary of 9-11. We think about what happened there with, I mean, obviously paying tribute to the firefighters who were killed on that day, but we learned so much through that event. I think the public learned so much through that tragedy about the long-term effects on firefighters. Uh, and and you and it's important to point those out. We often think of those who've died suddenly in the line of duty, and then we, for, we don't often speak of the ones who've suffered long-term, right? And it's important to remember them as well. Absolutely, Ben. In fact, um, I was down in the United States at the Na- our sister organization, the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. We have a, a wonderful, supportive uh, relationship between the two organizations. And this year it was announced that now um, occupational illnesses attributed to the World Trade Center downings have now surpassed the number of firefighters that were killed on that particular day. So, I mean, that's incredibly significant. Well, David, the best from us to all the families you speak to this weekend. And thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. It's not like um, a little kid came to school sick and got a couple other kids sick. Um, they literally, literally fed it to them. And that makes me angry. Right. Lots of concern amongst parents in Calgary uh, these days because of an E. coli uh, outbreak. Now, to be specific, the origins of this E. coli break- outbreak have not been determined uh, yet. AHS is still, Alberta Health Services is still investigating. But uh, we'll go to Calgary now because this E. coli outbreak has closed several daycares already, 11, I believe. Uh, it has sent dozens of kids to hospitals, some of them with pretty serious complications. And today, Alberta Health Services says there are 142 lab-confirmed cases. A Calgary's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Francesco Rizzuti, says AH5, AHS rather is still investigating. We continue to work to find the source of this outbreak, but have not yet pinpointed it. Our staff have been working with the operator, all of which have been very cooperative in our investigation of these 11 facilities, which have been given these closure orders by our public health inspectors. 
There you have it. So uh, some serious – part of the concern here – and again, there's facilities have been closed and so on. Part of the concern here is the strain of E. coli that is being dealt with in Calgary. It can be particularly dangerous for the vulnerable, including obviously young kids. In some cases, toxins can enter the bloodstream and attack the kidneys. Alberta Health Services today confirmed that a small number of the kids who've been hit and impacted by this uh, are now receiving dialysis. Joining me now with more on this is Dr. Stephen Friedman. He's an ER physician at Alberta Children's Hospital and a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. This has been a concerning one. I mean, we've been, I've been obviously, I'm in BC, we've been reading about this. Uh, we can see why there's a lot of concern amongst parents and the medical community in Calgary uh, right now, especially since this outbreak is among young kids. Yeah, it's a very large outbreak. And I mean, the acute symptoms are obviously very distressing to the child and their family. Um, they initially generally present with some watery diarrhea, which then becomes bloody after a day or two. The bloody diarrhea can last anywhere from uh, two to three days or f- up to five or six days. Um, they have a lot of abdominal pains with that. And, you know, while they're having these symptoms, in addition, it's really important to note that they can become dehydrated. So really important to make sure they don't become dehydrated because if they are uh, unlucky and they're one of the 10 to 20 percent that goes on to develop further complications known as the hemolytic uremic syndrome, we know that dehydration is associated with worse outcomes. So we as a healthcare system and as a team have worked really hard to ensure that all these children are maintaining uh, excellent hydration status and they're being treated uh, in terms of their pain as best we can to control that, um, and then monitoring very closely for evidence of the evolution of the hemolytic uremic syndrome. Right. Uh, Dr. Friedman, I, I think maybe just for listeners to remember, because we talk about E. coli quite often. I mean, there are outbreaks of E. coli. They're not uncommon. Uh, but what exactly does, does E. coli do to the body? So this is a, you know, E. coli, there are, thousands of strains of E. coli, um, the vast majority behave very similarly. This one is shiga toxin producing E. coli is a very distinct subset um, of E. coli. The vast majority of the other ones don't secrete toxins that do what the shiga toxin producing E. coli does. So number one, this strain is much more likely to lead to severe abdominal pains as well as the bloody diarrhea. Um, And that is kind of a cardinal hallmark of this type of pathogen. But what it really does does is it's the toxins that it secretes. And so in this case, it secretes a toxin called shiga toxin 2. And that is one of the toxins that goes into the bloodstream. And that causes cell death in some of the small blood vessels that, that lead to all of the organs in the body. And that cell mm-hmm. death actually leads to inflammation, um, which then leads to the complications that we see, which is primarily due to blockages of some of those small blood vessels. Wow. So, so it's serious. I mean, when you see the word children and dialysis, I mean, right away, you know, obviously for parents in Calgary, this is a really stressful time. Uh, what, what happens there? I mean, I, was, I mentioned it that, of course, toxins get into the bloodstream, they impact the kidneys, but, but it's, it, uh, you know, and, and I gather it's quite, the way it, it happens is quite insidious as well in the sense that it takes a while and, and uh, it, you know, the impacts are, are very serious. Yeah, and so what happens and why this is a very challenging entity is that, number one, in general, it's a relatively uncommon disease. So typically, actually, Alberta, unfortunately, has the highest endemic or baseline rate of this type of infection. So we see it most commonly 
outside of outbreak situations. And in Alberta, we would typically see about 40 to 50 cases per year in children under 18 years of age. So, but as if you kind of figure and factor that across the province, that's not a lot of cases. So most clinicians are not seeing a lot of these kids, if ever, uh, during their clinical practice days. So they're not quite familiar with the tricky nature of this infection, which is that as the diarrhea, the bloody diarrhea start to resolve and the children actually start to seem to do a bit better, that's when the toxin side effects and the effects on the blood vessels start to occur. And that's when these children biochemically start to deteriorate. So we can monitor them, which is what we do very closely because we have a lot of expertise with this disease in Alberta. For better or worse, we actually have learned and put in place very stringent monitoring protocols to ensure that we are doing blood work very frequently on these children to identify the evolution of the hemolytic syndrome, which is what leads to the complications early in its evolution, because you're right, it can go very, uh, it can fly under the radar. Parents think their child is doing better, but actually they might be going into kidney failure at home, which is why we monitor them so closely. Right. Uh, do we have an idea? I mean, I realize the AHS is still investigating, but typically, how do these how do these outbreaks begin? And this one seems like it's confined. It's not out there in the general public. It's confined to something that these daycares or some of them seem to have had in common. Yeah, and so I think that is why, you know, AHS and public health is pretty certain that it has to do with a shared kitchen facility Mm -hmm. uh, because it is at multiple daycares served by the same kitchen. The onset of symptoms was at the exact same time, and almost all of the cases essentially are linked to these daycares or household contacts of children from these daycares. But the way it typically is spread, essentially, is that cows... Uh, harbor this bacteria in their intestines and it causes them them no symptoms. The cows then pass stool feces that contain the bacteria. The bacteria go into the environment. The bacteria then end up landing on produce, so fruits and vegetables, which then go to the grocery store, or they end up in beef during the slaughtering process of the cattle. It contaminates the beef and that goes to the grocery store. So these then go home or to, the, in this case, probably a shared kitchen. And what typically happens is we wash our, our vegetables and our fruits very well, or we peel them or whatever we do to get the uh, clean off the outside of the produce. And we usually cook meat to an internal temperature that would kill any bacteria should it be present, which is why we always say to not to have red meat, uh, you know, obviously raw or undercooked, because that would not eliminate the shiga toxin producing E. coli. In this case, it seems like some food product was not, did not go through that cleansing process, and unfortunately it was a contaminated product, which was then served to a large number of children simultaneously. Right. And I suspect that with something like E. coli, part of the issue here, too, is that, of course, young kids have their own their own habits, right? They tend to, you know, they're on the ground, they're, you know, they're close to each other. And that, that brings up concerns about how it would spread within the daycares themselves uh, before they were closed and also within the households as well once the kids went home. Yeah, that is a major concern with households. We do know that shigatoxin E. coli has approximately a 10% household transmission rate. So one in 10 household contacts of an infected child will develop uh, symptoms. Um, So we do know that. As far as the transmission in the daycare, hard to say, but based on the acuity and the really rapid onset. So really, actually, um, the very astute emergency medicine physicians at the Alberta Children's Hospital noticed on Saturday that there was a huge influx of children suddenly with bloody diarrhea, 
way disproportionate to what we ever see. And at that point in time, we started calling the medical officer of health and saying, hey, there's something going on. We're worried about an outbreak. Um, and that was really the, the nuance. So the, based on the acuity, I think it's unlikely that there was kind of this gradual spread. We do sometimes see that, and we have seen that, where there is kind of one child gets it because it does happen. And then you're right, within the daycare setting, there can be kind of a transmission between children at the daycare. In this case, based on the numbers and the acuity and the simultaneous onset, uh, it makes us believe that there most likely is a food product vehicle involved. Right. What are you going to be looking out for now? Because I think I, I would imagine like all of these outbreaks, there's sort of a peak. Uh, but what will you be looking out for now in the next 48 uh, to 72 hours? Well, you know, we're still seeing new cases um, and many new lab reports of these children that are positive trickling in. And that will continue for the next couple of days. But yeah, you're right. Hopefully that starts to decline. So over the next, uh, as you said, 48, 72 hours, two things. One, we're going to be keeping an eye out for secondary cases. So transmission to siblings, friends, uh, other individuals, even possibly parents. But we wouldn't do that at a pediatric hospital. But on the adult side, our colleagues will be doing that. But the other is that this is the time point where children who do have the infection can run into complications of the hemolytic uremic syndrome. We already have numerous children hospitalized with that complication, but the median, meaning the, the midpoint where 50% of the children will develop uh, the hemolytic uremic syndrome is seven days after symptom onset. So the vast majority of these children, they started becoming symptomatic only last Saturday. So really between this coming Saturday and the next uh, 48, 72 hours after that could see quite an influx of children who have developed ongoing complications and evolved into the hemolytic uremic syndrome. Right. So, so we, we, yeah, we, 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 this is going to be an important 72 hours. What do you tell parents? Because again, we've been, I've been watching some of the news reports, obviously, from Calgary, listening to people calling in. Parents are very concerned. This is scary if you're a parent. Uh, what do you tell parents of young kids right now who fear that perhaps their child has come into contact with this? Um, so you're referring to parents who don't have children who are infected, but children, parents who are worried their child may or just, have been exposed? Just in general, yeah. I, mean, I, suppose, I suppose people sort of start to start to get, I mean, these things tend to spread a bit like wildfire, right? So obviously there's certain daycares that are involved. Other ones probably aren't. Uh, but just for parents in general, any advice to, to, as to what they should be looking for? If they worry that there may have been contact here, I think parents who know there's been no contact will probably be fine. Sure. I, you know, I think if a parent is worried that their child may be at risk, well, number one, there's, if your child has been exposed, there's actually not much you can do to present anything at that point in time. So then number two, it's to watch your child for symptoms. So we do know the typical symptoms are kind of an onset of watery diarrhea for a day or two, followed by an onset of bloody diarrhea. But any child who develops bloody diarrhea should be evaluated and have their stool tested. So that's right. the most important thing. The second thing is that we would do at the hospital is make sure the child is adequately hydrated. We may do some blood tests in the early days while we're waiting to confirm if it is an STEC infection or not. Um, and then we would go from there. But, you know, really... Um, you know, we're focused right now on the uh, providing support to the families of infected children um, and trying to re reduce transmission to any other child. And so what we do tell these parents, it's really important to be open, upfront, frank and honest and compassionate. And um, we make it clear to them that, you know, number one, we're trying to treat your child's current acute symptoms. So what is it that brought them here? Are they in a lot of pain? Are they dehydrated? Do they have any complications right now? And so we address those as our, our primary focus. And then the next is to kind of counsel them about the risks. The good news is 
80 to 90% of children will not develop the hemolytic uremic syndrome. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the, the good side of the coin, right? The vast majority of the odds are in your favor um, that, that your child is going to recover from this without any sequelae. Having said that, 10% or 20% is a very devastating number to a parent where they hear they might develop the hemolytic uremic syndrome. So we do need to talk to them about that. We do need to let them know what we are doing to reassure them that we are monitoring very closely for that. This isn't a disease where we send the parents home and say, take care of your child at home. We actually are doing, we've set up clinics across the city um, where we're seeing very, very large numbers of children, kind of their, their de novo clinics that have sprung up so that we can do every 24 hours blood tests, assessments, right. um, and administering IV fluids to these children. So we are doing everything possible to monitor, treat, prevent. Um, unfortunately, there is no specific treatment for this uh, infection, in, and in fact, giving antibiotics increases the risk of developing the hemolytic uremic syndrome. So we right. do not do that. We, but as I said, I think at the start of this interview is that we do know that dehydration can lead to worse outcomes. So we are very studious at uh, assessing, addressing, and treating dehydration. So we view that as a therapeutic modality in terms of preventing development of dehydration. Right. So really right now, just trying to contain and treat those who, uh, who have it. That's, that sounds like th- that's the plan at this point. Uh, uh, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for sharing all that with me. I appreciate it tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, it's not even fall yet here in Canada, but you can forgive any Canadian for maybe taking or wanting to take a little peek behind the curtain of uh, seasons to wonder what, what winter might look like, right? I mean, Okay, maybe it's not time to be talking about winter or snow, but the old farmer's almanac is out, and I caught, I saw the headline, thought that's interesting. Um, so we thought we would pull back the curtain a little bit, and we'll turn to that source. We'll open up the pages of the old farmer's almanac that's been around since 1791. It's been called old since the 1830s, if you can imagine. So the it's not the old farmer's almanac; it's the old farmer's almanac. In case. You- you ever wanted to know. Um, So I took a peek at what the publication thinks we're in store for this winter from coast to coast to coast. And they've declared it. I'll give you a little hint. For most of the country, with with just a few exceptions, they've declared it a winter whiteout. So in a nutshell, snow and lots of it. So how does it impact where you live? Well, we thought we'd ask Jack Burnett, who's managing editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac. He joins us from New Hampshire. Jack, thank you so much. Break it to us gently. Great to be with you, Ben. Well, this is one of the things that we always, uh, I mean, I think, you know, you're in New Hampshire. I'm at West, but, you know, New, ha- New Hampshire is technically Canada South anyway. We all sort of at the end of summer, this time of year, we don't like to think too much about winter. Right? We don't like to, because we know it's coming, <laughs> but we don't like to think too much about it. Uh, so you'll have to break it to us gently. Uh, what's winter 2023-4 going to look like for us? Well, I don't know about the gently part, but uh, it's looking pretty cold and snowy. You know, Ben, I've been doing this for a long time, and th- I can't remember seeing a map of Canada with more white on it than we have for this coming winter. Oh, and geez. <laughs> that can't really be the only places that aren't uh, snowy are um, in very southern BC and then out in uh, in Newfoundland and uh, a little bit of Labrador and actually Cape Breton and northern Nova Scotia. But, you know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you go from Vancouver all the way across, you know, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, Hamilton, London, it's all white and snowy. Wow. Uh, and, and that's, and as you mentioned, that's pretty much 
for the for the entire winter. And you mentioned it was rare. So what's going on? Well, you know, it goes up, it goes down. Um, we it, one of the things that happens, of course, is uh, El Nino has developed out in the Pacific. Um, but that actually develops, you know, after we made our forecast, which is about a year and a half ago, it was just starting to to develop. So it goes in cycles. Um, and uh, this is one of those years when it's all white and it's all cold and snowy along for most of Canada. The real exception is um, actually, as I mentioned before, but also it's going to be a little bit milder than normal in eastern Quebec um, and other parts of the Maritimes. So um, we're looking actually for the uh, coldest it varies really, you know, from from region to region or province to province, you know, across Canada. Um, and, and southern British Columbia, as I, as I mentioned, is actually the outlier where, you know, it's going to be it's going to be uh, colder, um, but by the same token, drier um, than normal. And all the other places that I mentioned are going to be colder and and snowier, more precipitation and more of it in the form of snow. So. In British Columbia, you know, what we're looking at is the cold parts of cold spells to be the end of December into January and then the end of January into February. That pretty much holds true for the prairies and uh, southern Ontario, too. Uh, the snow varies, you know, from province to province uh, in general. Um, by ever so, so slight uh, margins, the, the winter seems to be become less severe as you go from west to east. So yeah. Alberta, slightly more severe than Saskatchewan, slightly more severe than Manitoba, slightly more severe, uh, or excuse me, less severe. It becomes less severe as we go eastward. Right. So. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, as you mentioned, though, when you look at the map for the year, I mean, that's as much white as you've ever seen on a Canadian map for your winter forecast. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You know, we call it a you know, winter whiteout. Um that's uh, getting a lot of play because that's really what it is, you know. We, um, it's not going to be like a, you know, a number of years ago we called for a T-Rex of a winter, um, with you know superstorms and everything. But um, this year it's going to be more like a, just an easygoing, you know, lumbering bear of a winter that's going to lumber across Canada. So um, that's what we see. Yeah, and we've—I mean, I think we all remember those winters over the years. It's interesting that Newfoundland and Labrador have been spared. I mean, the—I guess the Maritimes a little not quite as snowy or cold. Uh, interesting that Newfoundland and Labrador has been going to be sort of the the bright spot, if you want to call it that, for the winter, because you know, as the famous saying goes, the coldest winter day I ever spent was a January. It was a July morning in St. John's, right? That's the <laughs> as the old saying goes. So it, it's going to be wet and mild in in Labrador and uh, and the very eastern tip of Newfoundland. You were saying. Yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, part of this has to do with the fact that the, the ocean temperatures uh, in the Atlantic, in their case, um, are a few degrees uh, or a degree or so warmer than normal. So when you have a, an increasing con contrast in the ocean temperatures um, between and, and air, air masses, what you, uh, what you find is that the, uh, uh, the storms and the, you know, precipitation really will tend to increase. So that's that's kind of the reason for that, among other things. Yeah, let, let, we'll, go, we'll go from east to west across our listening uh, audience for this show. So Ontario, snowy. That's what you said, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ontario for, you know, Ontario, we're seeing the uh, the coldest, really cold spells uh, end of December into January, and then from the beginning of February into the middle of February. Snow for Southern Ontario, interesting. Kind of goes from the middle of December 
um, through the middle of January. Now, that's not to say that it's not going to snow, you know, all the time anyway. Right. I mean, it's, a, it's winter, but um, we see the real concentration there uh, in the in those three months, December, January, February, and where the cold and the snow that I just mentioned overlap are the last week of December and the first week of January. In in the prairies, right. it's, it's pretty much the same thing, except it's extended out um, into November for snow right at the beginning and March at the end. So uh, what we're looking at is uh, sort of a uh, uh, bookended, again, uh, winter with uh, the... With the, with the cold centered in the middle and some snow on both ends and a little bit in February. Again, as we mentioned in British Columbia. Yeah, uh, you've called British Columbia, Southern British Columbia, you've called it sweater weather. Winter in Southern BC will be remembered for bouts of bone chilling cold. Now those bone chilling cold are not words that are often used to describe winter weather in uh, Southern BC, where I happen to be. So and I know having grown up in Montreal and living out here, winters here tend to be pretty, pretty easy going, but this sounds like it might be a little bit different. Yeah, we're looking, you know, we're looking for some real... Uh, some colder, drier uh, weather, as we said. Uh, in BC, we're looking at southern BC, uh, as I mentioned, you know, the end of December into the beginning of January, end of January into the beginning of February for cold. And for snow, the, the, the real heavy snow parts that we see, such as they are, um, beginning of December and beginning of February. So the long and short of that is that the uh, they overlap at the first week of February be the the hardcore of the BC, Southern BC, hard winter. Jack Burnett is managing editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac. We're talking about their Canadian or their winter 2023-2024 forecast for Canada. They called it winter whiteout. So there's going to be snow, more or less, more snow right across the country, for basically from east to west, from uh, from eastern Quebec all the way out uh, to northern BC. It's going to be cold and dry in southern BC. And the Maritimes, especially Newfoundland and Labrador, might actually get a little bit of an easier winter this year, at least according to the forecast. Um, Jack, I know that your the almanac looks forward a little bit because I was looking at the summer forecast and it looked pretty okay. It looked it looked pretty okay, but but dry again though, as far as I could tell, or or drier than drier than usual. Yeah, you know it's uh, it, but not by much. See, that's one of, that's one of the things you know in in, in making our forecasts if our Computer returns, you know, say that it's, you know, 0.5 degree warmer, then that's warmer. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, earth shaking or anything like that. Same thing with precipitation. If we if we get a return that says 10 millimeters more, that's 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 more to us, but that doesn't mean, you know, a flood. So yeah, spring, you know, southern Ontario, cooler and wetter. Same thing for the prairies uh, in the, in southern BC. Actually, uh, more rain to the to the eastern part of BC and, and a little bit drier um, along the coast. The uh, summer, yeah, you're right. The you know um, in the in southern Ontario, it's warmer, uh, more rain toward the east, less in the west. Prairies, summer warmer and drier, and BC warmer, more again more rain in the east and less in the west. So it's funny how that kind of breaks out, but. On average, you know, it'll be a little bit warmer, a little bit wetter, but not by much. Right. And and just for, I mean, the way you do your forecast, I guess people would want to understand how this is done. I know, and I know it's explained. And you also, each and every year, I, I realize this, you look back at what your forecast was for the previous winter and you figure out how accurate it was. So how, how what's been this, what was the success rate like, like last year? 
Last year, uh, it depends on how you measure it. We were right. pretty close to 80 percent, which is our normal percentage, um, particularly with regard to uh, precipitation. Um, we were less than that um, with regard to uh, temperature, um, just because the weather, you know, has been so been so wacky. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's one of the things. Uh, you know, uh, over the years, we make our forecasts a year and a half to a year and three quarters ahead of time, but we go to press maybe three or four months at a time. So sometimes we can see that our for you know it's going to be part of that twenty percent of the time when we're not going to be right for a particular place. But even though we could, you know, stop the presses and you know and change it, we don't change it. Once we once we do it, we stick with it and we're, you know, for 232 years, we've been saying, you know, when we're right, we're right. When we're wrong, we we own it and and we're always up front with everybody. Yeah, 1791, right, Jack? That's a lot. That's, yeah. a, lot of, that's a lot of forecasting. Yeah, it is. You know, the guy who started out uh, the old Farmers Almanac. He actually started. It was, it was the Farmers Almanac. His name mm -hmm. was Robert B. Thomas. He lived outside Boston. He started. He's one of had one of many Farmers Almanacs, and he thought um, to make his forecast, he would use three things. The first was uh, what we now call meteorology. Meteorology, which is like the uh, local air masses, how things. Uh, are affected by topography and water and so on. Second thing was long-term weather trends in an, area, in an area, which we now call climatology. The third thing that set him apart was that he thought for some reason that sunspots had something to do with weather or solar radiation. So he started making his forecast and, um, and he turned out to be pretty accurate and pretty popular. Also, his almanac was one of the first ones that had humor in it. So- Right, which it still does. End, yeah. Yeah, in the end, you know, see, he ended ended up outlasting all the other farmers' almanacs of the time. So in the 1830s, they added the word "old" to the name. So a lot of people, you know, think that that it's the old farmers' almanac, but in reality, technically, it's the old farmers' almanac. Right, and even old since the 18 since the since the 18, yeah, right. 1830s. That's a long time yeah. to be old. Well, Jack, I thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean. You know, bundle up, folks, bundle up. It looks like it's going to be a pretty snowy and pretty chilly winter for most yeah. of us. Yeah, and there's, you know, Ben, I think uh, many of your folks probably realize we have a huge website, almanac.ca, which hung with hundreds of free pages about uh, about everything. You know, we have gardening, food, history, humor, you know, astronomy, yeah. and so on. Yeah, it's and more than course. more than a, more than just the forecast. I know. In fact, the forecast is at the back of the almanac, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, Jack, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ben. Well, let's finish off tonight with a grammar lesson. Now, I know that doesn't sound so pleasant on a Friday night. When I hear grammar lesson, there was this one verb book we had. I went to French primary school uh, called The Becherelle. It came in green. And I still, if I see one on a bookshelf somewhere, I still kind of get a bit of a twitch because it makes me so uncomfortable having to conjugate verbs. You know, I mean, it just never again, right? Never again. Uh, but, but this one's not about grammar, really. It's about pronouns. And of course, they've been in the news a lot lately. Now, specifically in this country, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick have recently made changes to their policies uh, for LGBTQ students returning, uh, requiring that school staff uh, seek parental consent if a child wants to change their official name or their pronouns. And that is if they are under 16, of course. Um, 
uh, Rob, uh, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, spoke about it today as well. There has been there was also a poll out recently that showed a lot of Canadian parents, a lot of Canadians believe that parents for children of a certain age should be kept in the loop when it comes to these sorts of moves. Now, on the other side of the coin, there have been a lot of people who said, listen, schools are a safe place for students who need a safe place. Sometimes, um, you know, uh, your gender identity is something you don't necessarily want to discuss with your parents. And perhaps you should have an area or a place where you can talk about these things uh, safely. And of course, if a place like New Brunswick offers the counseling, maybe that's an answer. The problem is that oftentimes they pass these sorts of policies and they don't provide the support. They don't provide the support mainly because they didn't really care about the kids in the first place. This was never about the kids. That's part of the problem. Um, but that's the politics of it. Let's talk about the grammar of it. Dennis Barron is a really interesting guy. He's a professor emeritus um, of linguistics and English at the University of Illinois. And he wrote a book called What's Your Pronoun? Beyond He and She. And he really dives into, I mean, he looks at the politics of it all because that's what spurred it. Um, but it's more than a product of the culture wars. It really is. It's not new. Uh, he looks at the historical context. He notes that Shakespeare used singular they. Women invoke the generic use of he to assert the right to vote. Um, with, when, when it came to the women's rights movement. And people have been coining new gender pronouns for centuries now. So we thought we'd get a lesson on this to get a little context about this very modern uh, issue that we're having here, this debate that's going on, but put, put it into, into a historical context. So to help us do that, of course, is Dennis Barron, Professor of English and Linguistics uh, Emeritus at the University of Illinois and the author of What's Your Pronoun? Beyond He and She. Dennis, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. We tend to think that all controversies are new. And I think looking through your work, it is clear that even this whole issue around pronouns is not whatsoever new. It's it's not new at all. People started to express some concerns about uh, gender, what we now call gender pronouns. They didn't use uh, that, that kind of word or, or sometimes neo-pronouns as early as the late 18th century. In, in the 1790s, a couple of commentators in England started to complain that, well, you know, when you're talking about someone whose gender you don't know, is it, are you talking about a man? Is, are you talking about a woman? We don't have a word. We don't have a pronoun that reflects that uncertainty. And so we could use one. And they initially suggested borrowing or repurposing an English word, and by the mid-19th century, as early as 1841, I find people starting to coin new pronouns to reflect uh, situations where you're uncertain of the gender of the person that you're referring to. And that, that first pronoun was just the capital E, letter E. The possessive form was ESS, ES, right. and the ob object form was M, E-M. Well, and this was coined by a doctor who had just graduated, got his MD from Yale, and apparently had time to write a an English grammar book. His suggestion was widely ignored. As many have been over the years. You've pointed out, and many. you just mentioned, you, you touched on it, that in yeah. many ways, and we're seeing this controversy, I think, maybe because we I consume a lot of English language media, but we're seeing this this whole debate pop up, I think, more virulently perhaps in english-speaking countries i'm thinking particularly of the u.s and canada but also in the uk uh, yes. and that is in, in part a function of the language we share yes yes exactly french german swedish 
are to some extent playing catch up, that they are investigating this sort of uh, gender inclusive uh, use of, of language. But it, as far as I can tell, most of it started with, with English. And, and it started in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I have found hundreds of suggestions of either repurposed words, borrowed words, or coined words to function as gender neutral or common gender or gender inclusive or the word we often use now, non-binary pronouns to fit situations where you don't know if you're you're talking to a, a male or a female or someone who is trans or non-binary or oh, you want to hide the identity of the person to protect them as much as possible uh, from uh, retribution. So you're talking about a whistleblower. Or uh, in the case of the literary use of sort of masking, gender masking pronouns, in order to create some suspense, there are a few mystery writers who refer to the perp, the perpetrator, the murderer, the criminal, as they or on occasion as it, in order to delay the suspense. If you attach a gender to the person, it gives the reader more of a clue as to who's a suspect and who's not. Linguistically speaking, then, how important are pronouns? Because we feel like now they've become at the center of this debate, right? But sure. how? But traditionally, how important have pronouns been? How important have individuals taken the pronoun that is associated with them or they? Oh. Traditionally, uh, it's a non-issue. Right. The whole politicization of the pronoun question, which we are seeing in the last two or three years in terms of action by government authorities and discussions of these these pronouns uh, for the last 10 or 15 or maybe 20 years, in association with a broader discussion of gender roles and gender identity and changing public attitudes toward people who who don't fit the binary, who are non-binary or trans or or somehow feel that they their own sexuality, their own gender identity is not expressed through conventional language. And that's not, I mean, language evolves, right? I mean, this is hardly, although it feels like a very modern debate, uh, how we ref- how we use pronouns, the kinds exactly. of words we're allowed to use, or, or allowed is the wrong word, that we prefer to use, say, uh, yeah. or choose to use, uh, ha- evolves always. And it feels like this is part of it, but I've rarely seen one become so politicized so quickly. It's, it's you know, it's great for somebody like me who's in the grammar game. I, I get a whole bunch of things to write about to to say, well, you know, I, 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 I recently posted something on social media where, where I said, remember the days when if you mentioned the word pronoun, an entire class of seventh graders would promptly go to sleep? Because, you know, and, and, you know, I was once one of those seventh graders. Oh, no, a grammar lesson is coming. I better start my daydream now. But all of a sudden now, you know, grammars is big news. Pronouns are big news. And for conservatives, certainly in the U.S., and I think Canada is not far behind for conservatives, pronoun has become a dirty word. It is. And, 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 and a misunderstood one. I don't want to 
pick on certain people, but you pointed it out in a blog, uh, Laverne Spicer in 2022, who is a far right candidate, wing, right wing candidate for the House of Representatives in the U.S., sort of say there are, said there are no pronouns in the Constitution. And you were quick to point out the first word in the Constitution is a pronoun. I mean, there's this misunderstanding about what a pronoun actually is. Right. Well, you know, people who politicize language often aren't concerned with language facts to begin with. So so the whole people have always had a kind of complex attitude toward the study of grammar. So maybe this is just another iteration of the fact that grammar education is something that a lot of people stay away from or look askance upon or feel they're not very good at. And it's just another sense that here's something going on grammatically that I don't understand and that I do not like. And and so I'm going to just you know, reject it. But 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 what's problematic is is that it's starting to appear starting to appear in legislation. So it, it it's like the government is sort of trying to direct the language and that never works very well. Dennis Barron is an emeritus professor of English and linguistics at the University of Illinois and the author of What's Your Pronoun Beyond He and She? And we're talking about this very modern issue of of, of what's your pronoun, so to speak, but also the very long history of pronouns and how they've evolved, uh, specifically in the English language, where a lot of this debate is happening right now. When did it become a modern political issue? When did it resurface as, as the debate that we're seeing unfold today, both in the U.S. and in Canada? I'd say over the last 10 years or so, it, it, it really entered the realm of, of politics rather than just sort of commentary. And people started to get aggravated and take sides. And you get particularly conservatives complaining about what the Florida law calls false pronouns. False pronouns, which is false, is a powerful is, word, isn't it? I mean, false it's is a, power, a powerful word. It, yeah. it, 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 to me, it has religious implications. Like you're worshiping false pronouns. You know, that's like it, it could have been a, an eleventh commandment or something like that. So, so they're wrapping themselves in this this idea that that pronouns are somehow God given, and the, the fact is that that biology biologists and psychologists all have been commenting on the complexity of our notions of sex and gender and how it's not really a binary, but but there are all sorts of variations and kind of sliding scale or however you want to visualize it. You get this opposition on the conservative side saying that this is sort of a threat to family values. It's a threat to, you know, Western civilization as we know it. And and it feels like, of course, the language, the fight over the language simply stands in for the fight over many other things, the Absolutely. many, many other things. I mean, language is the, is the easy place to fight. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, language pronouns particularly are both inclusive and exclusive. We've always used them not just to include people when we say we and when we say you, you know, we're, we're making judgments about who is, you know, one of us and who is against us. And this is just sort of part of that other that, that general pattern of how we navigate social situations. 
when you look at what's happened recently, we've seen it on this side of the border as well. There has been movement afoot in uh, two provinces and, and and in others as well. It's starting to about wanting uh, kids under 16, if they declare a change in their pronouns at school, then the parents have to be informed. I mean, there, there has been there was a survey done here not long ago that showed pretty substantial public support for that. As someone looking at just just at it from the linguistics and perhaps the politics as well, what do you make of that? Because it feels like it feels like we're wandering into some into some territory here. Governments and you mentioned it earlier are wandering into some t- territory that sounds a bit like language policing. And I get the I get the concerns that parents have and why politicians are tapping into that. But I also get the concerns about why we shouldn't be telling schools how to figure that stuff out. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the the issue of parental rights on, on, on one hand is sure, you know, Parents are the ones who get to excuse a student's absence or or say no, they're they're they they don't have my permission to to cut school. Uh, things like that are you know you 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 would find a long history of. But once you start policing language as a stand-in for policing gender, that becomes a lot more complex because students have children. Let's say have a complex attitude toward what they will and will not reveal to their parents. And you sort of don't want the school to be in the middle of that, but this is sort of forcing the school to be in the middle of that and to make decisions that are potentially harmful to the student and potentially damaging to the family relationships and the school relationships. So this is not something that I, you know, have have any expertise on. But from the linguistic point of view, it, it, it seems to go along with, certainly in the U.S., attempts to control what kinds of books can be found in schools, giving parents or just ordinary citizens who have no particular uh, stake in a given school, the right to object to a book in the school or classroom library, the right to object to a topic being taught in in the school. It's part of that movement that that worries me because because it's being co language is being co opted in support of censorship and support of taking education out of the hands of schools and putting it into the hands of, of someone who is not necessarily an authority on education. Right. And that's that's troubling. If past is prologue in this, where do you see yeah. this going? <laughs> I would like to think it's a, a popular conservative issue right now and that, that they will move on to something else in a couple of years because uh, what, what, what happens from my point of view is that you pick a particular topic to object to and when that's exhausted you find something else to complain about so pronouns is only part of the conservative attack on where they see society evolving i mean it was same-sex marriage just a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago Right. Right. And now now we've moved on to pronouns and, you know, it's been, you know, trans athletes uh, and should they be allowed to compete even in something like chess? Yes. Gender neutral bathrooms. Yes. All of it. I mean, we've followed it. Yeah. So, you know, they'll find something else to complain about. (laughs) 
Dennis Barron, thank you so much for your insight <laughs> on this. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. 